Well, would you do this for me? Would you open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6? I want everybody to be looking at this with me. So if it's a device, you got to get out. But I want you to see this. And when it's not up on the screen, most of the other stuff is up on the screen. But find your way into your Bible or your device so you can look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 with me for a moment. We're going to start there. Uh, Just being aware that we've got a number of folks who are kind of new to the church and people who have begun to to connect with us. Um, We're we're doing a series right now which is a little bit different than what we normally do in the pulpit. We're, We're typically featuring what is called expository messages, where, where the emphasis of what we're typically doing is we want to we jump into a text of the Bible, we want to learn all that we can from it, and then at some point in the message, the preacher wants to pull our lives near to that passage and say, what's this, what's this got to do with this over here? And so that's kind of the task of preaching each week. This is more like a, a prophetic series and that it's going to feel a little bit more like maybe reading the book of Isaiah, right? Isaiah doesn't open up with, hey, let's read from Exodus and rehearse Mount Sinai and the, the old covenant. Let's, let's, let's learn from that. He doesn't start there. Isaiah starts by putting his foot into the world of those around him and says, hey, do you see what's going on around here? God sees what's going on around here. This is what's going on around here. And this is how God feels about what's going on around here. So you get that in the first few chapters of Isaiah. Then you move a little farther into the book. And then Isaiah begins to talk about what's going on in uh, the surrounding nations. And he, he does the same thing there. He says, this is happening in this nation. This is the attitude of the people here. And this is how God feels about it. So there's, a, there's an element in which the pulpit sometimes needs to come into our world and it first needs to put itself, its foot down in our world and said, hey, are you noticing what's going on around here? And then we go to the Bible and say, hey, let's get some insight on this. So that's why this, this series of messages might feel a little backwards to you if you're used to being a part of what we normally do in preaching and teaching around here. We're usually starting more with a passage and then landing in our lives as a secondary element. But I think God needs to communicate with us both ways. But I do want to start here in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, this is the third part of this series. And so if you haven't joined us for part one and part two, you, you kind of do need those parts to catch what's going on here today. But this passage in Deuteronomy is Moses with wisdom from God for the people of God as they're about to enter into a new land, a new chapter in their existence. And some things they're going to need to be aware of as they venture into that land. And my sense of starting us this year was we needed to be aware of some things of the land that we're living in. Today's land. Today's culture that you and I will venture into. There's some stuff out there. I want to make sure that we see it rather than get tripped up by it and stumble over it. So this is how Moses introduces this element. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 10... He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give it to you with great and good cities that you didn't even build them, houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget 
the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. Right, so this is an interesting thing that, they're, they're, that Moses is going to educate people. He's going to say there's some stuff in the land that you're going into. And on the surface, it looks like some, some great stuff. Great stuff to have in our lives. And he even calls it good and great. He uses that terminology. And, and he doesn't have an aversion to them benefiting from it. And actually experiencing these things and enjoying some of these things. But... He's aware that they will have a mystical effect as well, potentially, on people's lives. With such a drastic idea here. Here's the drastic idea. You know the God who just did this incredible work in your life of rescuing you out of slavery? Out of the stuff that binds you up, makes your life miserable, turns you inward, makes every day weigh a thousand pounds. That God who liberated you from that you're going to forget him. Because what's in the land has, in my word, is to be used, is an enchantment about it. There's an enchanting influence that this stuff in the land that people of God dwell in, it kind of creeps in. It gets into your bloodstream. We just breathe it in like secondhand smoke and we don't, we're not even aware of it sometimes. And what I want to do today is Take us into another aspect. I'm trying to name some of these concepts so they can be a little bit more clearly seen as we venture in. But, but today we're going to venture into something that's really sort of been a shift that's been happening. I want to make you aware of this shift over time. Um, it, is, it is the shift toward the individual. And, and, and don't assume, because all of us recognize that word individual and individuality. But don't assume that the individual has always been treated the same way. Because he has not. And some of you are old enough to remember that this is not how everybody's done life all these years. But here's a little shift in what we call vocabulary. At some point, subjectivity shoved objectivity to the edge of our world. Right? You've noticed some of these things. Uh, Tolerance became a much more worthy virtue than beliefs or having convictions. Right? There was a day when, when even the culture applauded people who knew what they believed. People who stood for something. Right? We like people like that. We don't like those people anymore. Because they're too opinionated. And, and their opinions cross hairs with our opinions. And so what we want is we want tolerance instead. And tolerance wasn't a big vocabulary word 20, 30, 40 years ago. It is now. Right? It's a key vocabulary word. Uh, years ago, we began to notice how relativism was creeping into our culture. Everything became relativistic. And absolutes got shoved out of the picture frame. And so now, it's almost as though we've graduated to a place where there are no absolutes. And if you come off sounding like there's absolutes in a category, alarm systems go off in people's minds. They don't know how to take you. They don't know how to respond to you. Because they only know how to do relativism now. And with all this has come a featuring of the individual's interests. What is primary in the world that we live in is the individual. And, and some of you have noticed this. If you'll, 
And I, I don't know, I follow weird stuff, I guess, to pay attention to what's affecting our world. But um, do you guys remember the day when there was no such thing as an, an, an attorney advertising himself on TV? Y'all remember that? Do y'all remember the first time you saw those commercials? You were kind of like, what on earth is this? What is going on here? Well, see, what was happening was a shift was taking place away from the collective good to feature the individual's good. And so when that shift began to happen, it opened up a whole new world of lawsuits. Because now you could sue the big group on behalf of the little guy. And there's lots of little guys out there. And so they began to advertise, can I get your attention? Can I represent you? Because your individual territory and interest, all the laws are being redone, the whole universe. And so, you know, you might go to school, a public school, where you're the only person who's bothered by school prayer. And all you got to do is hoist your little individual flag, and when it goes up the pole, they got to shut down school prayer for everybody. Why? Because the individual is now the feature event in our culture. So this, this is the ground shift that you and I are now traveling through a land that has changed the way it thinks and what makes sense to it. So individuals now begin to function out of their own feelings. What should the world be like? How should it feel? How should everything in my life feel? How should you make me feel? How should this church make me feel? What should the government do that makes me feel a certain way? This is a massive shift at the expense of anything collective. The world now features the individual. Right here, Here's some vocabulary words for you as I'm trying to read more in these areas. Self-sufficient humanism. Galloping pluralism. I'm going to explore that one with you. Expressive individualism. Hyper-individuation. I had to stare at that one a couple of times. I didn't know if that was really a word. Personal human flourishing. And we're going to explore that one quite extensively today. Um, Now, here's where this is so concerning for me. This this stuff is so common in our midst, it's become odorless. You know, there's a commercial out there where you've gone nose blind to something, right? Well, even in the church, we've become nose blind to these things. And they're toxic, they're toxic to the Christian belief system. They're toxic to the way we live our lives. Right? Did you guys know this? <clears throat> you know how you get a gas leak in your house? It smells like that nasty, like rotten egg kind of smell. Did you know that's not how natural gas smells? Right? Natural gas is odorless. If you had a gas leak and, and the gas company didn't inject that stinky smell into their lines... You'd never know what you're smelling. It would just be killing you without you knowing it. And that's what these ideas are like. They're so common that when you and I breathe the air of our culture, we don't even notice this stuff is here. It does, it's not a house odor anymore. And so we're breathing this stuff and it's affecting us. And we're living in the outflow and the damage of it. And so today I want to I bring, last week we brought to life, or at least tried to bring to life, the, the enchantment of the imminent. That we live in a land that's enchanting us by making everything prioritized around right here and right now. That's all that you're called to have to pay attention to. And when I say right here, I mean you personally right here. Right? I've, got a, I've got a size of my life, I've got a territory right here that pertains to me, what's important to me, what gets my attention. 
you will get my attention when you sort of cross into my territory. So when you kind of show up right here, close by, no matter how big my little territory is, that's when I'm going to notice you. So if you like something that I've posted, right, that's my land that you ventured into. And now I notice you exist. The Bible has a lot to say about transcendent things, right? Things that are not right here and they're not right now, right? God is invisible. Imminent things are only interested in the visible. So God is on the, the short list of uninterested in him. He's transcendent. He's, he's over there. As a matter of fact, he's doing things over there too. But I'm not really interested in what's going on over there because I am in touch with right here and right now. And God says a lot about the future, about a heavenly home, about dealings from now into generations in the future. But, but see, that's transcendent stuff. And my culture is teaching me don't pay attention to that stuff. It's not necessary. It's not vital. To your well-being and to you enjoying things and having a meaningful life. And so I'm not thinking about heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like an insurance policy. I don't even know what the deal is on it. We don't think in these categories. Because we have been trained by our odorless culture to think imminently about our lives. And we've stopped thinking transcendently. Well, the other category I want to highlight for us, and there's probably more than this. And I'm just going to try and live in these two categories in this series is a category of personal flourishing. Personal flourishing. And the, and the specialists in these areas have called this age an age of authenticity. So let me, let me define this word authenticity first. John Stark says, In the age of authenticity, we're committed to personal human flourishing. And we find that flourishing within ourselves. So our spirituality must be driven by, quote, authentic emotions that come from within. Our modern secular culture disciples our hearts to be true to ourselves and to reject all outside intrusions. All right, can you just hold on to that phrase? Stare at that phrase with me for a second because this is the kind of odorless stuff. I don't think we're realizing that we're doing this. All right, so our culture is teaching us To be true to ourselves. So I've got a way of looking at life. I've got a perspective. I've got a grid through which you come to me and life comes to me. I've got to be true to that. And whatever doesn't feel like it's true to that, I am to reject it as an outside intrusion. And that's become... You ever see the hostility that's in our country? People don't just have ideas anymore. Everything's a fight. It's visceral. We're going we're gonna to go to war over this stuff. Why? Because there's something in the air we're breathing that treats, teaches you to reject that outside. and tre- Don't put that on me. Kind of a feeling. Right? Well, that's the culture. I look here. I wrote some of these things out because I want to make sure I said them in a way that was clear. In your outline there, it says, Authenticness, this word we're not used to, it, it must be understood as a self-defined dimension that's tethered to one's own sense of origination and coming from within me on my own terms, personal uniqueness and personal preference weigh heavy in labeling something authentic. Right? If I'm going to come along and feel like, hey, that's authentic, man, that's real right there. Man, I'm just keeping it real, man, that's real. All right, if it gets labeled authentic, it's because it's gone through my grid 
And I have approved of it. That's why I call it authentic. Anything that is associated with some tradition or some handed down boundary or definition or expectation is likely not to be labeled authentic. Because it came from outside of me. Now think with me just in this concept. This is a radically difficult concept to live with as the people of God. This flies in the face of traditions and norms and boundaries and ideas that come to us from outside of us. Probably from the generation that came before us. And you guys have heard me talk about this. We had a, we had a special Sunday where I divided the church in half and put all the 49ers over here and all the older people over here. Remember that? Because I've been noticing for years, the generation gap was back, baby. And it was back with force. And things that I hadn't heard in our culture since the 70s and early 80s, the remnant of the 60s and 70s, where there was this generational war, were back. And this is why. Because if you don't make sense to me personally... I don't have an ear to hear you. I don't want to listen to you. So just imagine what this, I love this authenticity word because it tucked inside authenticity is the word authority. And the way in which our culture is doing authenticity is destructive to authority. Just imagine, if you've got to be the validator and the originator, and your perspective needs to define what's authentic, what do you do when your parents pass on to you the way to do something? Their thoughts, their value system. What do you do with that? Well, it's an intrusion, right? I mean, what we did with it in the, in the 70s growing up was, you know, flip it off and shoot the bird at it and burn bras. I mean, that's what everybody did in the 70s. It was like, do not tell us what to do. Now, now my generation, I'm, I'm the tail end of the baby boomers. We were, we were ragers. We raged against things, right? We, we burned stuff and just did nuts kind of things. This generation today, it doesn't do that. It just ignores you. You won't ever quite be sure when your idea just got rejected. Because they're going to listen and then they're going to walk away and be totally unaffected. And they will not come back and ask you a question. They won't ask for clarity. They won't seek you out. They'll go ask their peers and their buds or shop online or ask Google or Siri. And if it feels genuine to them, then they'll accept it. But if it feels like it came from outside of them, they will not only not accept it, they will become hostile to it. That's what your culture is teaching you to do. Charles Taylor in his very interesting book, A Secular Age, says, What I have called the culture of authenticity. I mean the understanding of life which emerges with the romantic expressivism of late 18th century. Right, So he's going back quite a ways to see how this came to be. That each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. And that it is important to find and live out one's own way. You've got to discover this for you. You've got to come to your own conclusion about how to do your life your way. 
as, as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. Right? Do you understand? I mean, there's always been Republican, Democrat, and you know, issues that are pretty volatile. But man, is it nuts today or what? Why is it so much worse? Well, don't ignore this. Because you will not impose your ideas on me, government. You will not do it. That's not how I sound. That's not how I feel. Right? Now, this translates into your households, children and their parents. This translates into the church. Right? There's a lot of mileage being gotten out of this bad attitude. One can trace the strengthening, even radicalization of this ethos. A growing sense of the right, even the duty to resist established codes and standards, to declare openly for the art and the mode of life that they felt inspired to create and live. Right? You know where you see this show up in a shifting culture? Uh, music and art. Music and art surf on cultural changes. They find, you know, you know rock and roll. You know, rock and roll took off because the culture was shifting. And it became a vehicle to express that. And it had an attitude, didn't it? It was stick it to the man. You know, do not let the system, man, the system's against us, man. Right? This, this was all rock and roll was doing, just putting it to music. And, you know, and then you had late 80s and 90s, you had rap music coming into the urban setting that did the same thing. It, it took those elements and put them to music. Art takes on this kind of form. But part of it is a protesting element, right? It's a hostile, I'm against that. Don't put that kind of stuff on me kind of a feel. This is getting under our skin. Charles Taylor says, If we think of the 60s as our hinge moment, we note a widespread critique of our society in the period immediately preceding it. Right? Remember... In the 50s, the, the programming on TV was shows like Father Knows Best. I mean, how many know you, you're not going to be seeing any shows like that coming out anytime soon? Right? Where kids all waited at home for dad to come home from work to share his wise insights. Right? Dad's a buffoon now. Da- dad's a moron who can't tie his own shoes. And thank God he's married to somebody who's got some brains. Because God knows he'd have burned the house down a long time ago. I mean, that's dad today. That wasn't dad in the 50s. That would have been a strange thing for you to encounter a presentation of an authority figure like that. Well, the revolt of young people in the 60s, Taylor says, which really extended to the 70s, were indeed directed against a system which smothered creativity, individuality, and imagination. They rebelled against a mechanical system in the name of more, quote, organic ties. Now that word organic catches my attention. Not because I used to smoke pot, and that meant something different in the 60s and 70s. But organic, it's, kind of, it's a word that's gotten a rebirth in the last 10 or 15 years. It used to really mean something in the 60s and 70s. But well, think about what, what is organic. We've got organic stores. We've got all kinds of organic things out there now. Well, organic simply just means something that kind of grows naturally out of this setting. That's what organic is. There's no pesticides. There's no fertilizers. There's no outside intrusion. 
It's just growing up from within. So organic, that's a, that's a good thing, organic. Let me just tell you what is organically happening in the church world. Because, you know, part of, part of our agenda as those who lead and care for the people of God is we have to figure out ways to collect the people of God into one place so they can be influenced by God's word and by one another. So fellowship is a biblical thing. It means we get around one another and we build each other's faith. We build relationships with each other. We rub off on each other and we need that. A huge part of leading the New Testament church was teaching God's people God's words and God's ways. And so we gather together to do that. But over the years, culture shifts and changes. So the way you gather people becomes a challenge. And in the last 10 years, it's become extremely difficult to gather God's people into any one setting. So we came across a book. We studied this. uh, Some of us read it together and and looked at some ideas that were in it. And one of the things that was being highlighted, because we we were wrestling with how to improve our small group settings. And this was a book written about small groups. And one of the feature elements in the book, and it was, it was a good book. I don't, I'm going to sound like I'm really ragging the book. But this one concept is troubling. It touted that churches needed to learn to do things more organically. And back then, I hadn't studied all this stuff yet. And I didn't quite get, well, all right. So it was sort of this advertisement that, you know, you keep trying to gather people. You keep trying to gather people right here and you're gathering people right here. And these books are being written because nobody seems to be able to gather in them anymore. You can't get people in small groups. You can't get people to show up for things. So this book is saying, hey, this is how you do it. You just do it organically. You just kind of let relationships develop naturally. That's not a bad thing. Completely. Except, but here's, here's what's underlying some of that. Not all of it, but some of that. Is organic competes with organized. See, organized smells a certain way. Organized sound like somebody transcendently over there came up with an idea that they're now trying to tell me to be a part of. Somebody organized this. Somebody said where it's going to meet, when it's going to meet, how often it's going to meet, and what it's going to be about. And I wasn't a part of any of that. Doesn't sound organic to me. Sounds organized. That's what it sounds like. And you know, no one recognizes that in the culture in which we live, do not put your organized stuff on me. Do not require me to be a part of it. Don't obligate me to be a part of it. Because I didn't originate it. And so, you know, if I want to get together with Christians, I'll just figure out a way to do that on my own. And so the church comes up with these ideas, right? You, this morning, were asked to be a part of a small group, right? <laughs> I didn't do this on purpose to you, right? And I'm not going to make you stand up or anything. But how many of you just ignored that? And you're here this morning, and you have no intention of being a part of that organized thing. And you don't have an attitude about it. You just ignored it because you're not a boomer. You're younger, and you ignore things. The boomers are going to burn something before they leave today. They're going to come in my face and say, Keith, you want to know why I don't go to small groups? Here's why. Because of this and this and this. All right, you're a boomer. You're an older person, and that's what's going to come out of you. The younger people, you're not coming, and you're not going to tell us why. You're just not going to show up. (laughs) But here's what I want to tell you today. I'm telling you why you're doing what you're doing. Because your culture has discipled you. 
that if it doesn't feel real to you personally, if it doesn't pass through your particular grid, if it wasn't your idea, it's not that important. It doesn't meet my personal flourishing dimension. But here's something that's really interesting, right? If you still have your Bible there in in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Bible is really, really big into this transference and receiving thing. Transfer and receive. Somebody's going to transfer, somebody's going to receive, right? That's how we get the Bible. That's how we get an awareness of God. God has done things previously. And the Bible speaks of one generation shall commend your works to another. So the Bible has this idea that what's going to influence us and affect us is going to come from outside of us. So when you start installing this inner wiring that says, hey, if it feels like it's from the outside, that's to be opposed. That's a problem. That's a massive problem for the church. So here you have these passages here in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. And these words that I command you today, they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Right? What gets installed here is on the plains of Moab, a generation that didn't have the experience of the previous generation at Mount Sinai is being given that experience by having it transferred to them from outside of them. And the guy who's speaking this right here, he's not a millennial, he's not Gen Z, he's not even a baby boomer. He's 120 stinking years old when Moses says this. That dude is so far removed from hip, knowing what's going on, I don't even know if they propped him up and how he spoke. But I guarantee you, he didn't sound like he was using your slang, your language, your way. He is not one of us. And yet he is saying, this is how God is going to transfer the reality of who he is from one generation to another. Listen, this is massively breaking down. Massively breaking down. In the church world today, where churches are falling apart and you can't gather people, and the ones that are gathering are the ones that stay. Sometimes they they develop this polarization. So you can walk into some churches and everybody is 65 years or older. Everybody. Everybody. And then some young person comes into that and it's like, whoa, this is like a culture shock. And, and, you know, to fault the old people in this equation, that set of old people is perfectly fine with it staying just like that. Because I don't have to learn your young ways. I don't have to deal with your different attitudes. I don't have to put up with your music and your tattoos and the way that you dress and your different priorities and the fact that you got a cappuccino in your hand every time I talk to you. I don't have to learn any of that stuff. I just would rather hang around people that, you know, all we're talking about is, we don't have too many days left here, do we? (laughs) So that church just wants to be left alone. So this is where I say, this is not an age thing. Everybody's breathing the air. Because the personal grit of the older person says, you know what's valid? Doing it my way. Singing my songs, my way, and my time with my schedule. That's what's valid. And then a younger generation says... No, that doesn't sound like it came from us. That sounds like it came from y'all. So even if it was right, we wouldn't want anything to do with it because that's just wrong. You know, to receive something from somebody else that you didn't originate yourself. So you guys keep that to yourself. So we'll all get together and form churches ourselves. 
So you walk into some churches. Go walk into, I'm going to say this as an over-exaggeration. Go walk into any new church plant that you can find. And see, just go around and do a quick poll. Just be a stranger. Walk in and say, how old are you? How old are you? And see if you can find anybody over 40. And the strange thing is people are writing books about how to gather people into these settings. How to gather them, really? So you've tapped into this. And you don't know you've tapped into this. But what you've tapped into is, let's make it feel like it originated with them. Let's let them have the ideas. Let's let them create the schedule. Let's let them have the source for this, and therefore, they'll own it. I don't say that's completely wrong to do. I think there's a place where that's appropriate to do. But when I read the Bible and I have a 120-year-old man saying, this is how you transfer from one generation to another, that the church that existed long before my generation, your generation, or any generation came along is going to transfer the living God's ideas into our setting. They're not coming from us. They're foreign to every one of us. And if you can dress them up and you can use buzz language, you know, I mean, maybe I should wear a jacket. You know, am I freaking some of y'all out? Should I have holes in my jeans? You know, because, you know, that, that you walk in some church and it's kind of like, really, that's the best clothes you own? All right, hey, cool. No, because he's trying to be relevant. And I get all that. And all that's not wrong. What's, what becomes a problem is when these things are operating inside of you as the grid through which you're going to say, that's good, that's not good. That's what I want, that's not what I want. That's the way I'll do it, that's not the way I'll do it. You can't be the personal source of evaluating things that way. You have inherited insights from an ancient God who has some ancient ways about what he does and what he has to say. And every one of us has to learn to listen to him. And we're supposed to be multi-generational among one another. We're supposed to be different. And we're supposed to validate and pursue one another in those differences. That's what the church ought to be. But that's, the church is having a hard time pulling some of this off. But once you install this, here's my warning. I think I wrote this out in your outline. Warning, this spell, this enchantment upon the land will produce... A relationally shallow and convictionally weak church world. This is where we're going. This is what is in the future of the church. There will be more church hopping than ever. Only rivaled by the outbreak of more personalized, self-authentic way of doing spirituality. Which is already happening rampantly. Which will be deprioritizing of corporateness and an elevation of personalness in your Christian life and practice. A diminished view of authority... And the need for or influence of people who play a God-given role of authority in our lives. Hold on to that paragraph because that's the future of the church world. When you have thin, what does this mean to me? How do I feel about this stuff? Driving you, it's going to erode longevity. It's going to erode loyalty to one another. It will erode difficult relationships that you have to work at to be a part of. See, all this stuff will unbolt you. You'll, you'll hop from church to church to church because the second the church environment starts to feel like, this isn't doing it for me. The schedule doesn't work. The emphasis doesn't work. You know, the people don't exactly relate to me. That's all you need. That's all you need right there. That's the recipe for you to look inside and say, this doesn't feel right. You're gone. Some of you have been in church long enough to know 
You've stayed in churches years ago when all those things were a problem. Because something else was operating in you. This is where you won't even notice you're doing this for reasons that really don't make any sense. It's an odorless smell. And the personalness. Everything's personal today, right? Who needs to show up for a meeting? Who needs to come together with others and pray? I mean, can't we do all that stuff online now? Can't we just download whatever we need and interact through an app and, and just do it when it works for me? And that makes sense to us. The whole world is doing everything when it works for them. But then the church comes along and organizes things. Oh, that's not organic. Charles Taylor says this, There arises in the Western societies a generalized culture of authenticity or expressive individualism in which people are encouraged to find their own way, discover their own fulfillment, do their own thing. This term has plainly altered the shape of secularity, mainly by shifting the place of the spiritual in human life. The connection between pursuing a moral or spiritual path and belonging, look at that word, to larger ensembles, state, church, or even denomination, has further loosened. We are now living in a spiritual supernova, a kind of galloping pluralism on the spiritual plane. That's an interesting term, galloping pluralism. Right? The church is a body of ideas. We all have all kinds of ideas about how to live life, how to do these things. In an age that validates every individual having the right to his own opinion and somehow having to respect all those views, you have created so many views and so many ideas that it's hard to sit in the same room together, isn't it? See, I can thumb right past you when you're just a little entry on a screen. I can ignore you. But when I get in a room with you here and I hear the idea that's different than mine and somehow yours has got to be valid and mine has got to be valid and everybody's got to be valid because we're in a land of galloping pluralism. Remember, there was a day in which you threw an idea on the table and quickly convictions and beliefs would would take that thing apart and you'd walk away knowing, hmm, that's not not a good idea, is it? Today, no one wants to touch it. Throw it on the table and tolerance kicks in. How do I tolerate that? I'm sure in its own way, it's valid. Hey, if that works for you, right? And that idea, it doesn't doesn't get killed by the organism. It flourishes as its own right in our lives. And so in the church world today, there are a gazillion ideas that everybody's got about how to do things. And we're all treating them like they're valid. Let me move to this terminology of personal flourishing. That's authenticity. This is personal flourishing. Personal flourishing means this. An enchantment with my individuality. With my dreams. With furthering my interests and my preferences. Now, this is very critical. This is not just an attitude. It is the gatekeeper of what gets in to the modern human soul. If this whatever, I mean, whatever is coming in your way in your life, whatever it is, a relationship, this task that you're being asked to take upon yourself or you're pondering taking upon, a role that you might be playing 
in a setting, in an institution, in people's lives. An activity, a time investment for you personally, money spending, whatever it is. If this does not pass the gatekeeper question of how does this further my personal prosperity project, my hopes and dreams and desires, then it won't become welcomed or pursued. That's the gatekeeper. There's like a century standing post at, at the edge of our life that lifts itself up and things present themselves to us. Small groups got presented to you this morning. It came to the doorway of your life. And you're making a decision. Will I be a part of that? Will I invest the time? Will I invest the energy? Will I invest the relational currency to be in that setting? And the grid pops up and the doorkeeper goes, well, how's that going to make you feel? Well, you know, I've been to groups before and they get a little boring and, you know, one person dominates and just takes all the time and talks about something totally irrelevant to me. And, you know, it doesn't work. It's not on a convenient night. And, you know, I got to go across town and, and then half the people don't show up sometimes. Right? So here's the grid. That doesn't make me feel personally like I'm flourishing. So I don't know. I don't know. Now, if I took this and just spread it around our lives, this, this is how, unfortunately, lots of us are making decisions about lots of things. I had a funny conversation with a guy the other day who's been reaching out into somebody's life, and, and he recognized some of this. He didn't use this terminology, but he's been reaching out to somebody who's not easy to reach out to. They're just, they're just trouble, and they're problematic. And so if you step into their world, you're going to complicate your world. You're going to busy up your world. It's going to get messy, right? I mean, everybody got people like that in your lives? Right, well, you are not going to enhance my personal flourishing. As a matter of fact, all you're going to do is make my personal flourishing in jeopardy. Because I won't get to pursue the things that I want. I won't have time to pursue the things that I want. And you're going to wear me out. You know, it used to be, that's how we cared for people in the body of Christ. We got around messy, broken, time-consuming, difficult people for the sake of the grace of God touching that person's world. Today, that's too time-consuming, that's too hard, it's too messy, it's too difficult. Listen, this grid is in us. And it stands like a doorkeeper over everything we're going to do. And it lets some things in and it keeps other things out. But I don't know if we've ever stopped to think, is, is that my basis for what I will and won't do? Who I will be around, who I won't be around? How I will use my energy and my time? Because see, in a world that has busied us and overscheduled us and crammed too many things into our lives, we've got critical decisions to make about time and energy. Critical And I might not be able to get to my stuff if I have to get involved with your stuff. This is another version of eminence and transcendence, right? If I sow my time and my energy and my effort over there, it might not come back to me. It might not benefit me. You're right. It might not. And we used to have a value for that. But we've lost that value. It's an interesting insight John Stark says, the modern person who sees personal human flourishing 
as his or her highest commitment, then sees every relationship or obligation, personal, relational, religious, communal, as merely and only an enhancement to the primary commitment to personal flourishing. Christianity is not a means to human flourishing. I would take odds with him. I don't think, I think he overstated that. But in fact, Christianity instructs us to die to self, consider others more important, turn the cheek, offer ourselves as living sacrifice, enter into weeping and sadness with others. This, of course, creates a conflict with the modern, which sees God and neighbor as enhancements that we can take or leave when they become burdensome or demand sacrifice. Our churches are potentially filled with people who see their current church commitments and investments into community as enhancements to their flourishing. When these enhancements begin to impede our flourishing by asking for sacrifice and demanding discomfort, the temptation will be to put off faith as an intolerable intruder. This may not be a conscious or explicitly stated condition, but it is the way hearts are formed in the West today. Listen, I know sometimes the church organizes something and puts it on a calendar, and you know what it feels like for us? Oh, jeez, you're kidding me. Did those idiots have anything what's going on in this month? How busy this is? I mean, what are they thinking? Well, you know what we can't be rescued from? There are certain things in our lives that simply require sacrifice. And that's a curse word today. Because sacrifice and personal flourishing are opposites. I'm going to sacrifice. You don't understand. My agenda is what furthers my interest. Sacrifice, Keith, can you define the word? Sacrifice means to give that up. Yeah, it does. I'm sorry. And I can't fix that. And there's, there's something godly about that. And there's something personally transforming about that. And there's something about ushering the kingdom of God in about that. That you and I can't escape. Or, or we can settle for a different kingdom. But it won't be the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God comes through sacrifice. How did it come to us? It came through the son of God sitting on a throne saying, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to temporarily disband my personal flourishing for a little bit. And I'm going to sacrifice and take the form of a human being and be unrecognized, disrespected, move slow through time, be confined to a body. And then when I get to the end, there'll be no party and candles to be blown out. No one will be applauding. They will, they will be nailing things through my wrists. That's transcendent, isn't it? That's for your good. I locate and do these things. And this is what's in the Savior's heart. And you and I are being conformed into his image. So this idea that can I, can I get the whole universe to line up for me and my interest is opposite of what Christ has called us to be and to do. Mark Sayers written a very interesting book. says, Strange Days. He says, For our achievement culture at its core, powered by the rise of therapy as a kind of secular religion, This has elevated feelings as the peak of human flourishing. The greatest good is to feel good. Right? Hold on to that. The greatest good in our life is to feel good. As cultural critic Edwin Schur notes, potential and growth are thought of and talked about in strictly personal 
terms. Their presence or absence is determined in and through the individual's own feelings. The contemporary life script, listen to this, of the achievement culture is to arrange a life that delivers constant pleasurable feelings. To keep the social and psychic borders up, to keep negative feelings out. Right? This, is, this is what's in us, hopefully the script that we can write for our lives. Whatever the future is going to hold, whatever next path we're going to be on, we just want it to be full of good feelings and we want it to avoid negative feelings. That's the agenda right there. Now just see if you can fit your Christianity into that. And, and by the way, if you can't, I will go to a church that teaches that. So that I don't have to feel the way you make me feel. I don't have to self-examine. I just go to a church that all the more says, you know, I read a really strange... I'm not going to go after that. It was just strange, man. God is dreaming your dreams. It was something like a title like that. It was like, God, I respect. I'm thinking, oh, did you have to title that that way? Like, like we're going to now invite God to live in our little bit of universe and have him dream our dreams. Uh, God has invited us into the kingdom of God. I already had the kingdom of Keith. I didn't need a savior. I had the kingdom of Keith. I could have built it. I could have lived for that. And I still want to, quite often. And the culture is helping me feel good about doing that. Right about it. As a matter of fact, I'm a little PO'd that this is even being challenged this morning. Right? Is this bothering you yet? Is this sort of like salt in a little bit of an open wound? Because our culture doesn't sound this way. This is, this is an interesting he goes on and says when positive emotions become the pinnacle of personal growth a tyranny of feelings is quickly established compounded by the belief communicated from Disney children's movies to help to self-help literature that a life free of negative feelings and painful emotions is imminently possible you can have it you can do it this belief is confirmed by contemporary parenting styles and dominant educational practices that insulate the young from the painful realities of life. The sting of disappointments and consequences and the limiting reality of a broken creation. So this is where this has really crept in and it is not serving our young people who are young adults now. Because somewhere we... Breathe the air that led us to believe a life without difficulty, without hurts, without abuses, without being harmed is possible. And we began to parent that way. Like our greatest ambition in parenting is to build giant protective walls so that our children never encounter disappointment and difficulty. And they're never told something they don't want to hear and they don't get around those kind of people who influence them that way. So that now that you get older, you have no idea what to do when the world won't treat you that way. And how many of you guys know the world is not going to treat you that way? Matter of fact, you're going to marry somebody in the church and they're not going to treat you that way either. So I don't even want to make it sound like it's that terrible person out there. It's there and here. And they're not going to prize you and cherish you that way. See, this, this is what makes people bail on things that are difficult. This is why we don't do difficult well. This is why it's so hard to remain in hard places, hard relationships. 
Right? Marriage is, is just a strange world today. It's a strange world today. You know, years ago, we were, all of us, can you remember these statistics? You know, 50% of marriages end in divorce. Remember those years? Well, do you know that's not, that's not as bad anymore? Did you know it's because people just don't bother to get married anymore? <laughs> because they know that's hard. That, and I want an out. And so I'll just do this part in, part out thing. Right, did you know for the first time since they've been recording census data, there are more single adults in our country than there are married adults. This is a radical shift. Your 50 point something percent of adults today are single. In kind of the beginning of my life, not too close to the beginning of my life, probably the 70s, I think it was 37% of adults were single. See, because there's something about that setting that's just, it's just unattractive. I, I don't want to be, that's just hard. I, I don't want to make those kinds of requirements upon myself to adjust what would flourish me so that somebody else or this setting could be retained or some agenda, some transcendent, bring glory to God by sticking it out. Why would I do that? God would want me to be happy. Does anybody know that that's not in the Bible? I mean, that's the modern God helps those who help themselves kind of thing. Everybody thinks that's in the Bible somewhere. They must think it's in the Bible because that's what they come tell us. You know, let the wheels come off of your marriage. Let it get hard. Let it be unattractive. Let it take something from you. And you're going to come in and you're going to tell us. God would want me to be happy. And that's the trump card that trumps everything. Where did you learn that? Just breathe in the air, man. Just breathe in the air. God doesn't want us to do hard things. God's, you know, a God who loves wouldn't want people to suffer and go through difficulty in their lives. And this this is what causes church hopping and uh, changing jobs and relocating. we, We just can't stand to be in a setting where something has become difficult. It feels wrong to us. And this is the alarming thing. I know I'm saying this for the first time in some ways. But you're going to need to stare at this until you see it everywhere. Because it's in us. And if you looked at your life and you found out the things you used to do that you no longer do, go back and revisit. Why is that? Why do I not do that anymore? Because it began to make sense to not do things that don't reward you a certain way. It just started making sense. And so you changed priorities and you changed the way you use time and money. And you shifted your life so that now you are invested into things that are going to help you personally to flourish and... We didn't even notice that that happened. Here's the uh, strange creep of this stuff. Some of you guys remember this, right? In the 1960s, I remember my dad telling me about this. I was young. We had a relative who, uh, who had some troubled kids that he was raising. And I can remember my dad saying this. It made no sense to me then. But I can remember him saying this because the way of parenting was shifting. Right? From the 50s, father knew best, right? Father comes home, he runs a tight ship, everybody's wearing clean clothes, they're all kind of got their, their schedule is oriented, doesn't matter what you got going on. Dad came home, boom, dad's the center of the universe, and everybody just kind of did this thing. Well, that eventually became this authoritative thing, right? 
repressing expression of people. So parenting began to shift and books got written. In the late 60s, the ideas that began to flourish was self-expression. Children need self-expression. You need to quit whooping them and let them have self-expression. And so that began to be engendered. So people got let off the leash more and more and more because it's good to express yourself. You got things inside of you. And so let's do that for our children. And so then self-expression moved into the 70s and turned into self-indulgence, right? Free sex, everything, the morals were off the charts, drug use was all over the place. It was just indulge. Just bring it to the self, whatever it is. It doesn't matter what it is. Just bring it to me, man. Let me just experience it. Let me go after that, right? Self-oriented. Then the 80s came along and we got introduced to a term that nobody knew what this meant 10 years before. Self-esteem, Suddenly, if you're really going to further this agenda, you're going to need some ideas to help it keep going. So how about this? You know, the biggest problem you got is that you don't love yourself enough. So let's go to work on that. Let's write every book in the universe in the 80s had something to do with self-esteem. How to build your self-esteem, how to increase your self-esteem, the problem with your life because you have a low self-esteem. Everything was bound to self-esteem. So suddenly, how we feel about us was the center of the universe. And then the 90s came along. And the next step in the project takes place. It's called self-validation. We've got to stop telling people that they're not great and that they're not successful So this strange thing starts happening, right? I I grew up in an era when you played sports and there was a winner and there was a loser. The losers cried after the game. The winners gloated and celebrated. And they went through a tournament and at the end, if you were the first team out, no one even knew you were still at the tournament and the winning team got a reward and there was trophies, et cetera, et cetera. The 90s come along and my kids are participating in sports and something strange has happened. Everybody's a winner. I'm watching this like, oh, you lost. You lost bad. It was embarrassing. <laughs> you got a trophy for that? Get that back. That's embarrassing. Get that. We're not keeping that. It's like there was something that every little child with all their little fragility and their self-esteem, they need to be told, you're really great. You're a loser. Deal with it. You lost. Right? You know, an interesting thing happened into the 2000s. World competition in the math world, right? Other nations are just destroying us. The U.S. has gone to this competition in math. And we are not even in the top ten, I think. These other nations are just destroying us. But when a similar poll was taken of the kids, we felt the best about how we did. See, the whole world has caved in on the individual self. And this kind of stuff has been creeping in for quite some time. So you and I, this all feels right to us. We don't notice how ridiculous some of it is. And how foreign to God's ways some of it is. So then it creeps into the church. Right? One last thought and then we'll be done. John Stark says, Our modern society has come to embrace self-sufficient humanism. According to Taylor... I mean by this human accepting no final goals beyond human flourishing. Nor any allegiance to anything else beyond this flourishing. Of no previous society was this this true. 
This is what, this is what gets us up in the morning and that brings us through the day. Is whatever I'm about to do going to make me flourish? At the same time, he says, we Christians live and breathe in this secular age as well. This self-sufficient humanism becomes part of the muscle memory of our own souls. Even if we are often unconscious to its effect. What Taylor tells us about secularists hits awfully close to home in the pews. The task of the preacher, it seems, is to aim at this dual temptation. We speak to the longings of those outside the faith and the wanderings of those inside. This would not be new for me to talk to you about some of the struggles churches are having. And God has spared us in many ways of, of many struggles. But why? Why are churches struggling so badly in this country? I just read a stat this past week. Between 100 and 200 churches will close their doors every week in this country. It was interesting that word that Tammy had for us. I thought of that. Of a church that's gotten so culturized that's lost its influence. Well, the church in our country has lost its influence. And when you see churches closing at 100 to 200 a week, two things are happening there. The people have lost interest in the church, and I wonder whether God has removed the lampstand. But clearly, we can be sure of this, people have lost interest in the church. People just don't want to be involved. But these are the underlying factors of why that's true. You know, when I get an email from a pastor, a friend of mine, who, this is, I mean, this guy is one of the most loving individuals you'd ever meet in your life. Wise, caring. And he tells me he's going into this year with a budget that's reduced by 30% from last year because of people leaving. That he's had to let go of another full-time staff member going into this year. When I have conversations with pastors in our region and beyond and, you know, the small group thing that we do, churches are all over this country stopping doing small groups. Do you know why? They can't get people to come. People just don't show up, be a part, participate in the way in which they once did. Prayer meetings, as I said last week, prayer meetings have long ago been abandoned by churches. Because people just don't come. Now why? Why? Because there's a gatekeeper who stands at the edge of your life and it stares at all those things and it ponders, is this going to flourish the things personally that I'm into right now? And we make a decision. I don't think so. And, and we do this on a weekly basis. It could be Sunday morning. Right? I had a busy week, had an event yesterday, kids had to go to something. Sunday morning, we're waking up, we feel a little tired. Is church today going to help me personally flourish? Well, you know, if you're into transcendent things, you'll answer yes. But if your life has become imminent, the rest that you could gain by just sleeping in, the recouping that you could do by getting yourself prepared for the long week that's about to come, that will win every time and so you'll find 
you're in church this week, but not that week. And two weeks, and then not that week or that week. And then a week here. It just, every Sunday, it's just kind of, hey, what works? And then small group attendance is kind of that way. And the way we do our life, it's about imminent things. How does this serve this right here? We have lost sight of how does what I'm about to do serve transcendent things? How does it restore my soul? And I need my soul restored. How does it enlarge my worship of God? How does it give me a burden for the kingdom of God? How does it awaken in me a heart to pray that God's kingdom would come? How does it help me serve the down and out that God dragged into this place to be a part of this gathering because he knew somebody who belonged to him would love on these people when it wasn't easy and it wasn't convenient to do so? But if I've become convinced that what matters to me is right here and right now in my immediate future and does this further my immediate interest in my calendar and my energy levels, I'm going to say no to all kinds of transcendent things. And if you want to know why 100 to 200 churches are closing their doors every week, that's why. It's enchanting, isn't it? It's rather unfortunate, but it is enchanting. Eric, go ahead and come back up, buddy. All right, here's what I want to do in the last couple of minutes together. I just want you to ask this question. All right, two weeks of dipping into these categories. Can you just ask between you and God, Lord, is any of this stuff me? Is any of this found its way into my bloodstream? Imminent, right here, right now, things and priorities. A world that lives close by my personal interests. Is that what's guiding me? Is that what my calendar gets created by? Is that how I use my relational energy in my life? Lord, is any of this me? Listen, personally, I'm not trying to be in a different setting than you are. I can sit right down in the chair with you. I can tell you, yes. Yes. Too much of this is me. I can say that as a pastor. I can just say that as a human being relating to others. Listen, parents, this might be a little sensitive issue, but I just want to make this real for you. At some point... Parenting children is, is going to interrupt what you're doing. Right, I, got, I got more emails than I can chase. Uh, I, and then you add text messages. This is, I, don't, I don't just do social media because it's, it's got a lot of issues. Uh, I, I don't do it because I don't, I don't think I could. I can't pay attention to anything else in my life. I, I can't look at another feed. I, I can't keep up with my emails. And some of you guys are going, yeah, you didn't return mine. Um, <laughs> So, you know, there's this motor running in the back of my head all the time. And then one of my kids comes up and wants to have a conversation. And I can become convinced. That's what, what's immediately rewarding for me is catching up. It's keeping up. It's furthering something besides that right there.
Any of your parents identify with that? Kids are being kids and they have needs and they need a piece of you. But you're spending yourself elsewhere. And I don't have any easy answers. Our world has become so big and so busy with so many things in it. None of this is easy. None of this is. This is the easiest part just to tell you, hey, the world's broken and it's got these three or four flavors of how it's broken. But if you want me to tell you how to fix all this stuff, that's the really hard part. There's a few things here in Deuteronomy we're going to explore in February. But I'm with you, and I need to ask questions about, Lord, is any of this stuff me? Let's stand up together. Lord, we know you bring light into our darkness. And Lord, for years, some of us, I know I have been reading statistics and reading the diagnostics of problems with people, troubled marriages, dysfunctional friendships and relationships, Abuse and hostility in workplaces. Church world full of church hopping and church abandonment and church inconsistency. Books are being written all over the place of new ideas and ways to do things different. Lord, this morning we just want to ask you for some light in the midst of our darkness. To be able to see, Lord, our the massive shifts in our culture, have they, they found their way into us? They're operating below radar. We don't, we don't notice them. We just notice the irritation. We don't notice the principles that are at work inside of us. We just notice we don't do the things that we used to do anymore. But Lord, we failed to recognize why. Lord, would you help us to see, help us to be diagnosed? Have we become enchanted? Things after things after things. Some of them good things. Some of them things you intended us to enjoy. Have filled our lives in such a way that we have forgotten so many things. We have departed from so many things, Lord. We, we are lost in this land. But God, I thank you for moments when you stick your foot into our world and you turn lights on. And Lord, I know you've been doing that for many of us in the last few weeks. You've been turning lights on and you're helping us see these things. God, I thank you for your nearness that you would do that. But I thank you for a God who responds in loving kindness and transformation and grace and mercy. Lord, that's who we look to today. I thank you, Lord, for patience with us. But Lord, we want to be light in this world. And we might need to learn how to be motivated by different things and not how to be captured by the same stuff that's captured everybody else. So God, I pray for us. God, I pray for 
some who have been Christians for many, many years. I pray for some, Lord, who have just come to the kingdom. And you are giving them eyes to see and ears to hear. Grace to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Lord, I pray for young and old. God, I pray for a generation in the midst of a noisy, loud, information-drowning generation to be light in that generation, to see things and experience things from you that sets them apart, that makes them different, teaching them to value things that are upside down. Lord, that's not new. You were so confusing to the people when you showed up dressed like a human being destined for a cross. Even your own disciples couldn't figure that out. Oh God, would you give us those kinds of scripts? Lord, would you rescue us from scripting our lives around what feels good is what is good? Would you give us a script that's like your son's? That sees the glory of God coming from our lives as the most important, valuable thing sees the benefit of others as worthwhile. Lord, I pray you'd take us beyond just hearing this this morning, that you would take us into seeing it now, seeing it in the land in which we live and being rescued from it by your grace, Lord. Give insight to us this morning. Give eagerness and willingness to us in the days ahead to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you guys, amen. See you guys on the coast.